Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to another episode of Driving the Basket. I'm Mike. Hope you're all doing super well today. I'm just going to launch into it right here at the beginning of the episode. We have hit a new low as far as the Pistons are concerned. If you've been with this team and watching this team for any amount of time, even if it's just this season, you know what it's like to suffer as a Pistons fan. A lot of you I know have been watching the Pistons for a lot longer than that. I talked to some of you who have been watching the Pistons since the 1980s. And anybody who was watching the Pistons in in the 90s and through the mid-2000s, I mean, we got to see quite a bit of success from the Pistons. I mean, we were really lucky back then. But since 2008, just starting off with the Chauncey Billups trade, it has almost invariably been frustration and pain with very, very little success. Uh, The Pistons have almost, for the vast majority of that time, been incompetently managed and coached. You know, all of those years in the late Dumars era when the Pistons weren't trying to tank, but they would find themselves in, in the low lottery every year. The years under Van Gundy, even though it looked at one point like things were really going to improve, that the year of that competitive sweep against the eventual champion Cavaliers. The first 20 games or so of the 2007-2008 season, mm, that's about it, really. I mean, the last few years have been a rebuild. And so that means a lot of losses. And you take that, that short-term pain for the hope of long-term gain, for the hope of a better future. And we were seeing the Pistons finally dedicate the, organiza- you know, the organization, including the owner, Tom Gores, who resisted this for nine seasons, but finally take the right step to build pretty much how you have to in the NBA these days, particularly as a non-huge market team. Like the Lakers, for example, uh, you know, can, can just get away with finding free agents. But for most teams, you got to rebuild, or you got to get lucky in the draft, uh, or a combination of the two. But in any case, you know the the organization really, really dedicated itself to the rebuild, and that was fine. And of course, we were hoping for much better this season, and it hasn't come. This season has been, I mean, I, I I I've said this before. I came back to the Pistons in late 2014. For a long time, before that, I was a hardcore Red Wings fan, as obsessed with hockey back then as I am with basketball now. I mean, ironically, I ultimately stopped watching the Red Wings in uh, 2015, or maybe at the beginning of the 2000, partway through the 2015-2016 season, because I had gotten really disillusioned with how the team was being managed. With Ken Holland, whom I maintained, it was a very mediocre general manager. I mean, it of course turns out that when you inherit from the previous general manager, a team full of Hall of Fame caliber talent, unlimited spending power, the greatest coach in the history of hockey, and a European scouting apparatus that is drastically better than what any other team had at the time, you can do really well. Unfortunately, after that, when those advantages are taken away from you, it's a long, slow slide. And from 2009 onward, Ken Holland's MO was to simply sign a washed-up veteran every year and just call it a summer. If he didn't bring back players with whom he was familiar, because that was his M.O., he didn't take risks. And you have to take risks in the salary cap era in the NHL. For those of you who don't know the the NHL, it's a hard cap. So basically, unless you have a player on long-term injured reserve, in which case you get cap relief, you are either under the cap or you forfeit every game. Uh, The NBA has a zillion exceptions that allow teams to exceed the cap. And in practice, it's very rare for a team to go into an NBA season under the salary cap. I mean, they're almost invariably over the salary cap, some of them by a great deal. 
So in any case, Ken Holland more or less just let the team atrophy, and I had big problems with that. And the Pistons, I, I got back into them during that magical little run after they waved Josh Smith. Those, you know, those of you who were watching during that time, you know what I was, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, that was just such an uplifting time. I mean, it didn't last. I don't think it would have lasted even if Brandon Jennings hadn't torn his Achilles. Man, that was a heartbreaking moment. But I mean, that was uh, that was lightning in a bottle in the, in the best possible way. And for about a month, we got treated to experiencing joy as Pistons fans again, which hadn't been the case in a long time, and it was just wonderful. And of course, things haven't gone quite so good since then. The Van Gundy era, which looked very promising in 2015-2016, especially after they traded for Tobias Harris. Reggie Jackson had had a really good season. Drummond had one of the more overrated seasons I've ever seen in terms of all-stardom and winning all-NBA. I mean, the guy... Was a, you can't take away the fact that he's a fantastic rebounder, even if he pads his stats in that way, and getting a ton of gimmies and on, on defense and a ton of his own rebounds on offense. And the gimmies on defense didn't really help because he was he would just hold them, and there were no transition opportunities that came from them. Uh, sorry, I I pledge I wouldn't talk about Drummond. I'm really really sorry, but in any event, he looked like he was on a star trajectory. Uh, KCP was looked like he was really becoming a good role player. Tobias was young. Stanley Johnson still had promise, and they really made a go of it with the Cavaliers. I, I think they could have won a couple of games with better coaching and with Reggie Jackson not playing so badly. Well, not shooting so badly and shooting so much. And then, of course, the next season, everything went off the rails. Everybody but Tobias regressed, and, and Van Gundy was just a disaster in terms of his coaching. And, of course, the season after that started out great. You know, the Pistons beat... The, the Warriors, the Durant-era Warriors, in the second out of a back-to-back. They beat the Celtics near the end of that period, I think at the end of October, beginning of November, thereabouts. Those were the best teams in the league. They really looked like they were a team that was going to be able to do something, even though realistically, I think, especially passing, you know, especially passing over Mitchell was kind of an issue on a team that really needed high-ceiling talent. But it was fun. It was a lot of fun to watch. It was a lot of fun to watch the Pistons go into a pretty tough schedule and play really good basketball for those first 20 games. And and then, of course, things came off the rails again. Avery Bradley regressed. I mean, he was playing well over his career baseline. Van Gundy didn't keep the offense fresh, and defenses caught on. And then Reggie Jackson got injured, and, and that was that. And then, of course, we know what happened next, which was the Blake Griffin trade. Uh, the next The season after that was... I mean, you hired Dwayne Casey, and I mean, I don't, I don't need to go after go over that season, but Pistons finished 500, and then got stomped on, used to wipe the floor by the Bucks. Who, I mean, it wasn't even close. Even with Blake Griffin back in games three and four, it wasn't even close. And, and then, of course, injured the next year, and, and the Pistons ultimately finally made the decision to rebuild Tom Gores, who had been fixated upon this completely ridiculous notion that we don't need to rebuild we just need to build a winning culture we just need to win and if we make the playoffs we'll just continue getting better because we'll have this winning culture and it doesn't work that way i'm not telling you anything you don't already know you got to have high level talent to win in the nba all the spirit in the world is not going to change things for all of you historians who know a lot about world war one <laughs> you know when uh, and unfortunately, this got a lot of people killed. It's not really all that funny. But the French, who were pretty much a war behind, 
and that was the case in World War II, had this idea that they were going to win the war just by being really, really high-spirited on the attack, and it's just like we're going to attack to the limit, not going to worry too much about logistics. I mean, of course, they got massacred. Uh, whatever. I, I know a lot about military history, and that, that's war and not basketball, so I guess that's not the most applicable example. It's just what came to mind. Basically, Gore has just had this completely flippant and stupid idea, frankly. It had absolutely no substance to it. And that idea and his habit of hiring incompetent personnel kept the Pistons in the doldrums. I think it was ultimately Ed Stefanski who got through to him. Stefanski, who is incredibly mediocre as an executive throughout his entire career, the very picture of mediocrity, was nonetheless a, an honest-to-goodness long-term basketball executive. And I think the failure of the Griffin trade and Stefanski himself finally got through to Tom Gores and said, this isn't working. You know, this just isn't working. We, we know that Stefanski ultimately sold at the deadline in 2020. Or was that 2020? Yeah. Mm, or was that 2019? I'm sorry. Yeah, that was 2019. Uh, he traded Reggie Bullock because he's like, you know, we're, we're realistically not going to re-sign him. So that was the first step toward a rebuild. And, you know, we, we all know what happens, what's happened over the course of the rebuild. And I've talked about that plenty. But we find ourselves in this season, the front office really screwed up the roster. That much is true. But the single greatest factor in this team doing as unfathomably badly as it has is, of course, the coach, Monty Williams. And again, we've all been through suffering with this team. And I never dreamed I would get to a place where I would question if I was really feeling willing or even able to continue watching this team until something changes, and that something is Monty Williams. Every game I watch, I know that I'm going to end up enraged at the just unfathomably bad coaching and just the torture that it inflicts and, and the way in which it very needlessly makes this, this roster so much worse than it is and, and the way in which it is just almost inconceivably stupid, incredible that an NBA coach could, could do things this way. This isn't run-of-the-mill bad coaching. I cannot emphasize that enough. This is incredibly, unbelievably, inconceivably, horribly, torturously bad coaching. You don't see this often in professional sports. This is zero out of 10 coaching. It is completely outside the realm of the ordinary. There are bad coaches in the NBA every season. There are bad coaches in any sport every season. This is worse than bad coaching. This is catastrophically bad coaching. I've been over why I think Monty Williams might be doing it. I'll present the options again. Uh, number one, the guy suffered a severe traumatic brain injury in the offseason. Again, I, I should reiterate that he was co a competent, if limited, coach with Phoenix and with New Orleans. I thought a pretty good regular season coach for the Suns, if definitely not a good postseason coach. Yes, he did make it to the finals. I think that if LeBron and Anthony Davis had been healthy in the first rounds, the Suns would have gone out in round one. They benefited from the absence of Jamal Murray in round two, and then they were helped by Kawhi Leonard being out in round three. I think he's deeply flawed in the playoffs in a similar way to how Dwayne Casey was, but I thought he was a good regular season coach. We have seen him devolve from that good regular season coach into the utter disaster that he has been for the Pistons this season. Yeah, so brain damage is technically a possibility. I think we would have heard about that. 
Option number two, the guy just doesn't care and is content to play mad scientist and, and just couldn't care less about just doing things that are actively harmful to the team and maybe even wants to get himself fired because he just gets to leave with his paycheck anyway. It should be noted again that Tom Gorez's strategy for getting Monty Williams to coach for the Pistons when he did not want to coach this season at all, he was going to get paid by the Suns either way. He's got three seasons in total at $7 million coming his way because they fired him not long after uh, the previous owner of the Suns had extended him. And you take this employee, this potential employee who doesn't want to work, and maybe in particular doesn't want to work for you, and you throw bigger and bigger amounts of guaranteed money at him until he is going to be the highest paid coach in NBA history. And he says, okay, it's probably not going to make sense for me to turn this down. And that is not, needless to say, not the way you get a dedicated employee. Um, and there is option number three, which is that as part of the effort to convince him to come coach with the Pistons, he was offered, excuse me, offered complete latitude in how he was going to coach. That would not surprise me, coming as it would be from the same idiot owner who did the thing I just described in terms of getting Monty to come to Detroit in the first place. And sure, it is conceivably possible that this is just the way he's always wanted to do things, and he just knew that he couldn't get away with it in his previous teams. Whatever the case, it is an utter and complete disgrace. The way he's coaching has no place in professional sports. It is, is just a disgrace to NBA coaching. I mean, it, it is comically bad. It is actively sabotaging this team. It is severely hurting this team in the now. You could argue that it is harming development as well. You certainly, I mean, that argument could certainly be made without any ambiguity and, and would be true when it comes to Jaden Ivey, whom Monty Williams buried to start the season, who was dumped, down, uh, dumped to the bench and, and down the offensive depth chart in favor of a drastically inferior player was denied any sort of significant role, wasn't even allowed to handle the ball for these all-bench units that desperately needed a penetrator and were flunking horribly for the lack of one, who only made it back into the starting lineup because the front office stepped in and demanded that it happen. That I mean, I think that's pretty clear, that they got involved and said, you have to do this and you have to give them a significant role. And then even then, Monty Williams refused to give him any sort of handling role until the front office had to step in again. This was not tough love. This was not hard coaching. This was a case of a promising, important, and hardworking player being buried by his coach without reason, cause, or any logic whatsoever, simply on the basis of pettiness and favoritism. I don't like this player. I do like Killian Hayes, so he's going to get those minutes. And again, did he feel comfortable doing this? Did he know he could get away with it because he was offered full latitude? by this deeply ineffectual and unbelievably unsuccessful team owner, whom I will say, I'll go on the record, certain, well, go on the record, I'm recording this, that I think Tom Gorez dearly wants the Pistons to succeed. However, this, I think it's also a case of I want the Pistons to succeed, but I don't want to change my methods at all. And needless to say, that's not good enough. Whenever Tom Gorez has meddled, it has almost invariably brought the Pistons to harm. And I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that Monty, he threw this money at him and he pursued him so much because he saw him as a shortcut. Hey, look, this coach was hired by the Suns and the very next season, you know, less than two years later, they were in the finals. And it's like, okay, well, Devin Booker comes into his own. Mikel Bridges is a year older. 
DeAndre Ayton is a year older. You add one of the best point guards in the history of the league. These things matter, and I think even with the youth, and I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself in previous episodes, I think correlation uh, is not, I think, is a fact that correlation does not automatically mean causation. And uh, maybe Monty had his role. I think there's also just players growing, young players. It's another season. Whatever the case, I have no doubt that it was him thinking he could shortcut the rebuild. The guy, needless to say, has never been patient. It took him nine seasons to approve this rebuild. In any event, it's making me, it's making it for me extremely difficult to stay, you know, to continue watching this team. One of the worst parts for me after every game is knowing that Monty is going to be around to screw things up in the same way in the very next game. To screw things up in just the most unbelievable ways, the most unnecessary, the most, you know, just the stupidest. It's like I put a lot of time into creating content this season. I do that because I enjoy writing. I do that because I enjoy podcasting. These post-game summaries I write up can take a couple hours at a time and almost invariably have something about Monty in there, some reason, some something that he did wrong that really contributed a great deal to the Pistons losing. Like, for example, against the Clippers. And these are just the, I mean, the decisions he makes cost points. They come together to cost games. This is why the Pistons are 2-9, and nine, excuse me, is it 4-19? and 19? Yeah, something like that, 4-19 and 19 in close games. If we're calling close games, games that were within five points with three minutes left. That is a hideous mark, and it is because he has been comically bad as a late-game coach, worse than anybody has any business being. And I should note that this is a Pistons team that is trying to win. It is a Pistons team. You have to do a terrible job as a coach to lose 28 straight games. It doesn't matter how bad your team is. If you're trying to lose every game, it's one thing. This team is ostensibly trying to win. Again, it's not normal bad coaching. Normal bad coaching happens all the time. This is next-level, incredibly bad coaching, nonsensically bad coaching. So you look at the Clippers, for example. The Pistons played pretty well in the first half. Really high energy held the Clippers to, I think, only 49 points. They were doing pretty well, even though Asar Thompson was in the starting lineup, which I think is a mistake and remains a mistake. I think there's every reason not to do it and plenty of reasons to not do it. There are plenty of reasons to do otherwise, excuse me. And, and then the Clippers, halfway through the third, went small. You had Harden, you had Kawhi, Paul George, Norman Powell, Russell Westbrook, and uh, Amir Coffey after Jalen Duran inadvertently gave Norman Powell a pretty harsh elbow to the face. And what do you do if you're the opposing coach? Well, there are weaknesses to playing small ball. Like you can be exploited by big centers, for example in terms of vertically spacing or just physically bullying, which we've seen Duran can do. His touch this season is remarkably improved. You know, he can create offense against mismatches. He can create offense even against some pretty darn strong centers. Alternatively, you can counter going small by playing a Sar Thompson. Just treat like with like, go with the Sar Thompson at center. The Clippers aren't really going to have much of an answer for what he can do as a role man, really explosive roller and vertical spacer. And he's also just going to allow you to effectively counter them on offense. These are two very easy options, whereby you punish a team for going small. It's not like how it was with the Utah Jazz back in, I think this was 2022, when the Clippers played them and went small. They used Nicholas Batum and I think Marcus Morris and Terrence Mann as center. And thanks to the Jazz not really having good defenders, they had really bad perimeter defenders, 
alongside Rudy Gobert, who is not the greatest switch defender. He's okay. He's one of the best drop defenders in the history of the league. But basically, they would just get him switched onto somebody in the perimeter. That means he's not defending in the interior. His value plummets. You stand a decent chance of getting past him. Can't do that with the Timberwolves. I mean, they've, they've got better defenders. And they also, just because Gobert can't do anything for himself on offense, and also Quinn Snyder didn't really do the greatest job at this. They didn't punish the Clippers at all. This wasn't the case with the Pistons. Monty Williams had those two options. They were both two very simple options. They were two very basic options that any coach worth anything would have done. Instead, Monty Williams decided to do nothing and just let them get away with it, let them reap all the benefits with none of the downsides. It's these things you look at and you wonder... Like, why, what, what is happening? Like, how could an honest-to-goodness NBA coach do this? It's just all, all the things he does wrong with the rotation, with closing lineups, with closing off, you know, with offense and close games, with uh, just the rotation hijinks are crazy, uh, just with his utilization of players. Uh, the times we, we have seen the Pistons do better are, are when Monty Williams' bad options are taken away from him. Isaiah Livers, Killian Hayes when he didn't really have cause to play James Wiseman, when he just had those short rotations against the, the Trailblazers and the Kings. When Boyan Bogdanovich was traded and Alec Burks was traded, and he had no choice but to use Jaden Ivey on high volume instead of just plumping, you know, pl- plumping, just putting him in the corner, just dropping him there, and where he was just not participating in plays. And those Jaden Ivey sets with him just hanging out in the corner were an absolute waste and should never have happened in the first place. The idea on offense is to give defenses as many things that they have to track as possible, to wrong-foot them as many ways as possible. But Monty Williams can't be bothered with that. I mean, I, I could go on and on. You're all watching the games. It's miserable. It's completely miserable. And this is the worst piston season in... I mean, I, I haven't looked, but, I mean, you combine the fact that the Pistons, I mean, they lost 28 straight. They have eight wins in more than 50 games. This was meant to be a season in which the team turned the corner. Year four of a rebuild. Sorry, I'm, I'm not about to cry. That just was uh, about to hiccup there. <laughs> um, yeah, I get more just incredibly angry than actually sad about uh, about the Pistons. Uh, you know, different strokes for different folks. I mean, I am sad about it. Uh, it's just I, I feel more anger at this bad coaching than anything. So, I mean, I hope this resonates with some of you and that it wasn't just a tedious listen. But, man, I, I thought 2016-2017 Stan Van Gundy, where just the season in which I think he coached the Pistons out of the playoffs and into the, into the low lottery, was the worst we would see. And I never thought, I mean, I thought coaches like as bad as Van Gundy were just gone from the league in general, a league that is now much, much less tolerant of bad coaches because the game is so scientific and the margins are so thin that having a bad coach is, I mean, the weaknesses of coaches, particularly in the postseason, but anywhere are much, they're just much more difficult for a team to withstand and still win games, particularly in the postseason. I never thought we'd see another coach like Van Gundy. I certainly never thought I would be comparing Van Gundy favorably to another coach of the Pistons, which is ultimately what has happened. Like, I don't know how many of you have seen this. There's this YouTube channel called Red Letter Media, and they make really hilarious reviews of science fiction movies, like the, the Star Wars prequels, for example. The, their review of The Phantom Menace is, is still, I think, one of the best pieces of content ever put out on YouTube. And, of course, this guy just 
tears the Phantom Menace apart, and then later in Attack of the Clones, in that review, he points out the fact that there's really no reason to be invested in a battle between clones and robots, especially if you know they're both being controlled by the same guy, and at least in the Phantom Menace, you know, you cared a little bit about the Gungans, and then he says, oh my goodness, this movie is making me, you know, make positive reference to the Phantom Menace, and that's how it feels with Van Gundy, who I think was absolutely out of his depth as GM, but also as coach especially in his final two seasons. He was kind of more mediocre in his first two seasons, but as the NBA evolved, which happened very quickly from 2015 onward, I think, well, I I think he also just got too obsessed with his vision, which was Reggie Jackson and Andre Drummond running endless pick and rolls. And Reggie got injured in in 2016 in that offseason, and he came back and he was terrible, and everybody regressed again, basically everybody, aside from Tobias, and it was just really bad. I do think Van Gundy cared a great deal. I mean, I think he was doing the best he could. I think he was just completely out of his element. And he inexplicably got hired by the Pelicans a couple of years after he got fired by the Pistons. And anybody who was watching tape of the Pistons, I think, could have told the ownership of the Pelicans that this was a bad idea. Not the coach you want to hire if you're trying to win or if you are trying to develop because Van Gundy is not the guy to ride herd on a bunch of young players at all period in the locker room, let alone actually focus on development. And, you know, lo and behold, no surprise to anyone, he got fired after year one. He was doing a bad job of winning. His, the young players didn't like him. He had to be ordered to stop playing J.J. Redick and play, you know, young players instead. Particularly, I think, uh, Nikhail Alexander-Walker, I think. But... Van Gundy, I think, again, tried his very best. He seemed to be a super hardworking guy. He was just extremely bad at his job in seasons two three, two and three with the Pistons and bad with the Pelicans, too. I don't think you can say that about Monty Williams. I think, assuming that he doesn't just completely not care and that maybe he even wants to get fired, assuming that's not true, I think he's just treating this team as his playground, his coaching however he wants. Maybe he thinks this is a radical new way of doing things that will actually yield good results. But he doesn't, at the very least, just doesn't care about doing things that make sense. You know, either way, it's that he just he just doesn't care about doing things in ways that make sense. I mean, I think you know what I mean. So it's miserable. And I feel like we're in a situation in which we're only going to be freed if Tom Gores decides to step in and make the right decision and admit to himself that he made the wrong decision and admit to himself that Monty Williams is actually doing a real bad job, and that the franchise is an absolute laughingstock, you know, insofar as he might care about that, and just admit that change needs to happen, because this is, to say the least, absolutely, absolutely disgracefully not working out. And is Tom Gores, who I firmly believe is, with Michael Jordan out of the picture, is the worst owner in the entire NBA, and one of the worst in professional sports, is he, well, certainly, I mean, the Pistons have had no success under him. And, and again, every time he has gotten involved, it has gone badly. And in this situation with Monty Williams, he managed to turn even his primary virtue, which is the willingness to spend, which he is willing to do, into a negative. Is he willing, is he going to make the right decision here? And how long is it going to take? Until then, quite frankly, I think the Pistons are screwed. I think that what they are going to be willing to do under Monty Williams, unless Gores at the very least steps in and say, you have to coach like a real NBA coach. This has to stop. You can't continue doing what you're doing. I mean, in that case, fine. You know, not fine because you can't trust Monty. You, know, you just can't trust Monty Williams at this point. 
but that would at least be an improvement. Until then, as long as he's continued, uh, excuse me, as long as he is allowed to continue doing what he's doing, we're all screwed. I mean, like we saw, you know, there were a couple of wins. That was nice, back-to-back wins. And again, Monty was forced into doing certain things that are positive, you know, that were positive for the team. And and the win against the Kings was good. The win against the Trailblazers, I mean, it was it's always nice. It's nice to win back-to-back games and back-to-back nights. But that Trailblazers team is real bad. They lost, uh, excuse me, they lost Anthony Simons in the second half, and it was kind of downhill for them from there. A really G League-ish rotation for a, for a team that is not good in the first place. Yeah, but still a win, sure. And then all it took was the Pistons adding some guys at the trade deadline. Almost all of them, you know, basically known quantities, not particularly good players. So Troy Braun Jr. has role player potential, you know, if you can just get it together. And suddenly the rotational hijinks are just really back in the picture. And James Wiseman is back in the rotation. And Mike Muscala, who had been big for the Pistons, you know, who'd actually gen- not big, but he'd been genuinely, you know, a solid bench guy is, is not playing minutes. And the Sar Thompson is back in the starting lineup with Jalen Duran, and not only back in the starting lineup, in a league in which, or, you know, there are very good reasons why you don't feel two non-shooters because it's a death sentence for your offense. You know, and he is not only in the starting lineup with Jalen Duran, but he is also just being told to stand in the corner where he contributes nothing and just acts as a massive spacing liability. These are things regular coaches don't do. It just These are things that regular coaches don't do for very good reasons because they make absolutely no sense. They contribute to losing. Monty Williams actively contributes to losing. You know, whether he's doing it deliberately or not, whether he just doesn't care, he is sabotaging this team. He's absolutely sabotaging this team's prospects of winning games. I've seen certain kind of logical fallacies out there about Monty Williams that I just want to address. Like, for example, well, this is a bad roster. It's true it's a bad roster. He's making it much worse. He's doing a terrible job. Oh, it's not all Monty's fault. Sure, it's not all his fault. A lot of it's his fault. Like, oh, well, you go out there and and the players had a bad game. Um, okay, well, Monty was also doing a bad job. Let's think about an, an analogy of a race car, for example, which for whatever reason I keep finding myself using. Crew chief does a terrible job, screws up the engine, and the driver goes out there and just does a bad job of his own accord. You say, oh, well, whatever. We don't, you know, the driver did a bad job. We don't care that the, screw, that the crew chief completely screwed up the engine. No, you'd fire the crew chief. <laughs> or, you know, maybe you give him another chance. But he completely failed at his job, and that is unacceptable. You know, he is supposed to be contributing to making sure that the driver has the best possible chance of winning, that he is managing the car in the best possible way so that it performs the best. This is a coach. Coaches are meant to make a positive difference. They are, if they do their jobs really well, they are making their team more than the sum of its parts. If they are just average competent coaches, then, you know, they aren't doing things great, but they're most likely not making a lot of mistakes or at the very least, you know, their mistakes are balanced out by things they're doing well. And then you have the, the very worst coaches who are actively and on a regular basis unambiguously and greatly detracting from the ability of their team to win games, and that is Monty Williams. That is completely unacceptable, and he is doing it to a degree that I have not seen in professional sports maybe ever. Those of you who are Lions fans have probably seen something like this, but I, I couldn't tell you. I, I don't watch much football. So it's just super hard. I know it's super hard for all of us. It's... I mean, I'm, I'm going to stick with it. I, I did something that is very unusual for me because, again, I'm, I don't know, you want to call it obsessed or whatever. I skipped last night's game because I just, I mean, I saw the box score. I was told by, by others what was happening. And I'm like, I just can't sit through this game and just find myself being completely enraged and just feel hopeless about, you know, how things are going 
and just know that this guy who is who is directing the team is, is basically sabotaging it again willingly or unwillingly or just because he doesn't care or whatever else i'm not that ultimately doesn't matter at this point as much as the fact that it's happening and he needs to be fired all right so let's move on to some other subjects rotation outlook with you know what the rotation looks like after the trade and this will just be what i think the rotation should be obviously we know that monty williams is going to do his own thing and that it doesn't make sense there is no reason to be running all bench lineups other teams don't do this for the simple reason that it makes no sense they're guaranteed they're not going to do well they might do well from time to time but you're willfully putting a lineup out there without you know without your best players without any of them your best players for the most part are going to be in your starting lineup you're just actively fielding a you're fielding a lineup deliberately that is likely to struggle monty williams likes them so much that if one of his bench players gets into foul trouble he will bring on another bench player so he can field his all-bench lineups. You know, against the Lakers, the Pistons got it to within 12. All-bench lineup. Last game, I know Durant was on the floor. All-bench lineup, 11-2 run. So my ideal rotation, you only run nine guys. I mean, you've got, of course, Cade and Ivy in the starting lineup. You presumably have uh, Fontecchio. Thank you for the listener who reached out and told me that I was not mispronouncing his name, though I did mispronounce Proshita. Uh, and there is one minor quirk with Fontecchio. If he starts in, I believe, five more games or plays a certain amount more minutes, which I think would get him to 2,000, though I can't remember right now, he meets what's called starter criteria, which means that his cap hold would rise from its current $3.8 million to 6.3, so $2.5 million less dollars in free agency. Whether or not the front office cares about that to have his minutes, uh, not necessarily his minutes, because he'd have to average more than, I think, 26 per game in order to, to, to get above the minutes, the threshold, the starter criteria threshold on minutes alone, but his starts in particular. So if they don't care to manage those, then I think you see Fontecchio as your small forward and you see Isaiah Stewart as your power forward. And of course, Jalen Duran as your starting center. You put Asar Thompson back into a position in which he is playing with four shooters where he is not a drain upon the offense. And very importantly, he can actually be involved and contribute. Very important for a rookie's, for a rookie's confidence, sticking him in the corner and just having him know that he's being a spacing liability and not letting him contribute, that's, that's very, very bad. It's a lose-lose situation in every way for a coach who has consistently chosen lose-lose options. Just unbelievable. I mean, none of this is rocket science. This is basic common sense. I'm not saying that to you guys. I'm saying that with regard to Monty Williams, obviously. So uh, off the bench, you got Marcus Sasser. You got Quentin Grimes. I think you play Mike Muscala at center, and you play Asar Thompson at small forward. And if you absolutely... and utterly and for whatever reason need a 10th guy you bring out troy brown jr you want to see what you got in him you know hopefully he has a solid rest of the season and he's he's shown some sort of progress but he's a decent shooter he's a not the greatest defender but he's you know pretty athletic strong got good size and uh that's how simple it is in my opinion and then you just run rotations that make sense you know try to have a starter or two on the floor at all times whether that's Cade, whether that's ivy you know even Duran. Though his defense certainly needs work, or Stewart or whoever, you know, run, run rotations that make sense, and and not all bench lineups. Again, Asar, very important I think to have him on on the floor with those four shooters. And no, if Asar doesn't learn to shoot, then the Pistons are in trouble. This was the risk with the pick. Asar, if he develops a shot, can be a great player. Asar, if he doesn't develop a shot, the league is incredibly hostile to players who can't, to perimeter players who can't shoot. You know, it's just very, very rare. It's just not worth fielding them, no matter how good they are on defense. Uh, you have to be able to keep up on offense in today's NBA. 
and with with a non-shooter on the perimeter unless your offense is playing around him and you got to be pretty darn good for that to be the case and it can't happen with Duran anyway because he can't shoot then you know you're, you're kind of just out of luck so rest of the season to work on I mean just keep working on what you're working on you know getting using the the young players properly and putting them in a position to succeed and seeing what you got, I guess, a little bit from Troy Brown Jr., the Pistons are going to re-sign Fontecchio. I mean, that's pretty much a foregone conclusion. But just do what you can to help with development. And we all know that that's not going to be done right. Coach isn't going to put his players in an ideal position to succeed or run the right lineups or run the right offense. Team looks super deflated. The last two games were miserable. You know, rest of the season, work on, find a new coach. <laughs> Tom Gores just needs to do the right thing. So answer a few listener-submitted questions. Again, always super appreciative to those of you who submit questions and, and those of you who reach out on Twitter. Um, yeah, I, I, again, I, I, I love hearing from you. And uh, I've really been enjoying those of you I've been in, interacting with on Twitter. You know, as recently as like three months ago, I really just was not into social media at all. And I'm not, strictly speaking, not really into social media. I don't use Facebook or anything like that. But I've, I've been really enjoying uh, having, you know, just discussing basketball with all of you it's 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 really been great so i'll start off with this one and uh, no offense to uh to the person who submitted it whom i know pretty well uh well, the difference is uh, uh, no offense uh, saying because I, I don't know if this was serious or not I'm, sh- I'm sorry i didn't ask you when you when you submitted the question differences between the games of hockey and basketball my substitution patterns are normally different i mean yeah of course i don't think you mean that the actual differences i mean basketball you know, aside from just the obvious, you know, the differences, you have a goalie and you have ice and you can hit and, and just the fundamental differences. Obviously, I don't, I don't even know why I got started on that. Um, so substitution patterns, individual skill expression in hockey is much less in part because you score far fewer goals. I mean, you just in basketball, you, you're going to get points in the half court a little bit less than 50% of the time. I think the efficiency threshold i haven't looked for this season but last season it was about 0.96 points per possession and in transition much higher so actually when you put the two together you're going to see points more than 50 percent of the time or rather yeah you're just you're going to sorry i just was wondering if i screwed up the math in my head in hockey of course you know if you got a hot goalie he can take 50 shots and he can get no goals and, and players play a lot less ice time like your best forwards i mean shifts are short it's a highly anaerobic sport so your best players might be on the floor, uh, your best forwards, or, or generally, almost invariably going to be the best scorers, unless you get a guy like Kel McCarr or Nicholas Lidstrom in 2005, 2006 with his 80 points. Your, yeah, your best scorers are going to be those guys. And they're on the floor for maybe 20 minutes, 20 minutes per game, assuming regulation. And, and the playoffs, if you go into overtime, it can become a whole lot longer. But substitution patterns, I mean, occasionally you'll have a guy on your bench not play. But these days, you have to field generally four full lines of guys who can play decent hockey. And of course, your defensemen are all, all six of your defensemen are going to basically play every game. So your substitution patterns are going to be different because guys aren't going to be on the ice for all that long. Whereas in basketball, I mean, in unusual situations, they can be on the floor for an entire quarter or longer. But it's, it's much more, much less. It's still a very anaerobic sport, but much less so. So you don't have any choice. I mean, you don't want your guys on the floor, your forwards in particular, and on the floor, on the on the ice for more than a minute at a time and proper you know proper usage of your players i mean proper management having the right guys on the floor sorry on the ice at the right time you want to have your uh, ideally your you know a strong set of defensive forwards 
on the ice against the other team's best forwards. If you're at home, you get last change. For those of you who remember the finals that the Red Wings played against the Penguins, Emmerich Zetterberg would always be on the ice against Sidney Crosby and drove Crosby nuts. And unfortunately, Dotsuk wasn't around for the entirety of uh, that 2009 finals because he would have been, you know, he would have spent the entire series defending Malkin. He was one of the best defensive forwards of the last several decades. So, yeah, that that's why it's different in basketball, especially in the postseason. You're sometimes just pumping all your minutes into almost all your minutes into six players because you want to play your best guys as much as possible. In hockey, you want to play your best guys as much as possible, but there's a limit on endurance, and you really want to manage their minutes so that they're at 100% at all times when they're on the ice. So next three draft classes, and how in the world do we turn around this round of Cade, isn't it? I think Cade will almost certainly get a rookie ext- maximum rookie extension this summer. It's just what you do, and the team kind of has to bet on it. I don't think they really have much of a choice at this point. But in terms of just talking about it's what you do, like Michael Porter Jr., for example, got a max extension. If you have a young player who you just really want to keep and you think he could be a high-ceiling player, then you give him the max extension. Michael Porter Jr. was a bit of a niche case, but with Cade, I mean, the Pistons just kind of have to bet on him. How do, in the world do we turn this around if Cade isn't it? <laughs> hope you hit someplace else on a high-ceiling player. And hope that Ivy becomes something really good and hope that Asar and Duran becomes something really good. And I think Cade, his, uh, his floor, this was... Actually, I remember seeing this said before the 2021 draft that his floor was something like Chris Middleton, and I agree with that. But if you want to win a championship, you have to have a superstar. You ideally want two. But if Ivy can become that superstar or something, and who knows, maybe that's possible. And Duran and, and Thompson and, and you got and Cade, you got two of those really become star players, then, you know, you're not completely out of the woods. Or if you can trade for somebody, you might not be completely out of the woods, but you stand a very good chance. Next three draft classes, I'll be honest. But by this point, I generally would have started looking at the draft. But I don't know, at this point, I haven't really even started looking closely at, at the upcoming draft, let alone the next two. And in the upcoming draft, I mean, it's, I don't think it's at all out of the question that the Pistons would look to trade that pick and capitalize on their cap space to bring in a star player. Uh, whom that might be is a different story. And I think they probably have a lot riding on that hope because to address free agency, which is the next question, again, we'll cover free agency, I'm sure, closer to the event itself, but good time to just look ahead to it, especially with the changes that have been had at the trade deadline. Free agency is not good. We've been over it. I know that free agency isn't very strong anymore, period. But players take extensions. It's the era of extensions. The star doesn't like where he is. He asks out player empowerment. You all know I think it's gone way too far. And you also have, at this point, a new phenomenon is, is players changing hands at the trade deadline. You know, high-caliber players, whom you can be fairly certain, are going to sign extensions. Like uh, Pascal Siakam, OG Aninobi. Those guys, you know, trade for them without being very certain that they're going to sign an extension with you. You just do that in the offseason. You offer them big money. Why do they say no? I mean, you have an additional benefit with OG Aninobi that his agent is the son of Leon Rose, the president of the Knicks. Uh, the, the the Knicks have really done pretty darn well with having well-positioned <laughs> family members. You know, with Jalen Brunson being being the first, it's like, oh, it's not tampering if he's talking about it with his father at the dinner table, and I think you can make a pretty good case that uh, that's reasonable. But anyway, let's get back to free agency. Tobias Harris, excuse me, Tobias Harris is the the option most talked about. And I think this kind of contextualizes, and, and this isn't going to be an uplifting talk about free agency, though. I think that's that's kind of been the case already. No, I think that's clear. 
uh, Tobias is more just kind of like the maybe the ideal option rather than a good option. Uh, don't get me wrong, I, I really like Tobias. Super hard worker, consummate team player. I mean, the ultimate sportsman by all accounts, a great guy. And I was sad to leave him genuinely because I, I really liked Tobias. I was I was sad to see him leave Detroit. Very sad when he was traded for Griffin, in part because I hate. I mean, I hated the trade, but also I was just really sad to see Tobias go. I think he he really liked Detroit. He really he said it that he thought he was going to be in Detroit for a long time, and and he really wanted to make it work in Detroit and be part of and be part of the Pistons being a successful team. And also again, just a great guy and and an absolute team player. So the issues with Tobias beyond the fact that he's 32 and players often begin to go. Or he's going to be 30, 32 next season when next season starts, or, or just about. Is that players very often start to go into athletic decline at that age? Also with Tobias, he's not a knockdown shooter, which the Pistons really need in the starting lineup. He two seasons ago he was around forty percent. He's around thirty five percent this season on catch and shoot threes. He was thirty five percent two seasons ago. So decent at attacking off the dribble, of course. You know, very respectable attacking off the dribble and, and can play off ball effectively, and and he does with the Sixers. I mean, it was Harden before, Butler, Simmons, Embiid, Maxi now. But he tends to fall off the further he is pushed down in the depth chart. He can really allow himself to be squeezed out of the offense. Again, if you have a good coach, you make sure that doesn't happen, but there, there's only so much ball to go around. And he tends to do pretty poorly if he's not significantly featured in the offense. He's nowhere near as bad as on defense as he used to be, kind of more in the realm of average at this point. I mean, his his main issues used to just be getting caught ball watching, or just his focus on defense was was somewhat poor. Even not focused in terms of working hard, because he never gave Tobias never gives less than one hundred percent. So he's the conceivably the best option in terms of free agency for filling the hole of power forward. I think we can, I hope we can safely assume at this point that the notion that that Isaiah Stewart is a power forward is going to be left by the wayside, and he's playing backup center next season. So you go on down the list. I mean, we can rule out guys like James Harden for obvious reasons, not that he would fit with the Pistons anyway, and Clay Thompson at the age of 34, and with the money he's going to want. Not going to sign that guy to come off the bench, and uh, or even to start at small forward. And the hope is that Asar Thompson is ready next season, of course. So let's just go on the list. Pascal Siakam, of course, staying in Indiana. I think he'd be a terrible fit with the Pistons anyway. Gordon Hayward. I'm, I'm just going down the list based on salary. I'm just going to skip some guys. Obviously, the Pistons, I think, would have no interest in DeMar DeRozan, who needs to be the center of the offense. is going to be nearly 35. Buddy Heald is an option. The a wrinkle with Tobias and, and Buddy Heald both is that the Sixers will actually, well, they don't need this cap space, but, you know, to re-sign these guys because they got bird rights on both of them. But they could just decide to keep the two of them. And if you have the choice, you're Buddy Heald, you're Tobias Harris, and you have the choice between sticking with a contender or going to a rebuilding team that was really bad this season. I mean, maybe you want to go to a young team and make it work, but especially if you're getting into your 30s, as both of these guys are. Buddy Heald came into the NBA very late. He came in at, in 2016, but I think he was already 23 at the time. He is going to be past 31 when free agency starts. So, yes, I, I think I was right there. I think he was actually a little bit over 24. And you go on down the list. D'Angelo Russell. Um, okay, well, you already have... The guards don't really make a ton of sense for the Pistons. They already have Cade and Ivy. And sure, you could move Kate up to play at small forward. That's an option, and I think he's going to have to play minutes there in order to get minutes for all these guards next season. But D'Angelo, I mean, you worry about defense. He's a bad defender. But hey, if, if you want to move Kate up to play small forward, I think you're, you're sacrificing an advantage that he has in terms of his size. Though he, he plays a shooting guard at this point, but it's, you know, you're, you're still, you still have him 
playing at guard against guard size guys a lot of the time and not having to defend against forwards. But D'Angelo Russell, sure, becomes an option. He's a strong shooter. He just sucks on defense. But if you're the Lakers, especially if LeBron is staying, it's pretty much mandatory that you're keeping D'Angelo Russell. And again, um, bird rights on him, fairly certain. You've gone down. Gary Trent Jr., if he hadn't picked up Grimes, he might make sense. But Gary Trent Jr. is very much a guard. If you want to move up Quentin Grimes to play small forward, then sure, but you're running a fairly small lineup in that instance. And, I mean, Gary Trent Jr., he is six foot five, but very, very much plays like a guard. And I realize at this point that I'm almost just kind of saying, oh, also, like, yeah, if you want to play him with Cade, you got to move up. To, you got to, and Cade with Cade and Ivy in whatever situation, you got to move up to Cade to, to small forward. And I realize at this point that I'm just getting to whom the Pistons should not pick up. And I'm very, very sorry about that. But basically, in the upper reaches of free agency, it's, it's pretty bare. The Pistons could consider making another run at Kelly Olynyk just to play off the bench, but he'd be playing a, a pretty small role. Again, you've if you you hope that Asar makes it into the starting lineup and that you sign or draft a power forward, and and you already have Sasser and Grimes, and you have Stewart in the in the uh, coming off the bench, and you're not running a ten man rotation. Things are getting kind of tight, and guys uh, they want to play. So uh, let's not talk about depth players. And if we're not talking about depth players. There's very, very little that's attractive on the market. I mean, you have some decent guys like Nicholas Claxton. He wants to stay in Brooklyn. He's going to get paid a lot. There's no reason to play him at center behind Jalen Duren. Miles Bridges, I've got to say, I have no interest in. The guy is morally reprehensible. If Troy Weaver is holding to his guns at all about selecting for character, Miles Bridges is going to come nowhere near this team for what it's worth. And we've heard that him coming back to Michigan may also make things worse rather than better. So, obviously, the attractive players are going to be in restricted free agency. I mean, you could take a look at a guy like Dario Saric, who has actually been pretty good this season for the Warriors. So, if you just want some depth of power forward, I would give Dario Saric a look. Actually, he's, he's a name that, that I would pay some attention to. Assuming Golden State doesn't try to keep him, but I think he's going to demand more than the minimum contract he got this season. So, that's a name to look for. So if you had to pull the trigger on a restricted free agent, I would look at Gary, excuse me, at Gary Trent Jr. Again, that just makes playing, you're just going to play Kate up at, and Quentin Grimes up at small forward quite a bit more. But he's scoring off the bench. He's not a bad defender. He's a very good three-point shooter. I mean, again, you just got to hope that Asar works out and you got to have some depth of power forward. You just want to make sure that you have enough size. Torian Prince is an option for depth of power forward. Again, if he wants to leave and get more money, the Lakers are not really going to be able to give it to him, though that assumes that LeBron is going to stay, which is going to be a big storyline this season. And uh, unfortunately, contrary to what happened to me in 2K13 career mode, uh, I don't think LeBron is going to ask to join the Pistons. So more interesting is, oh yeah, and sure, we have guys on player options. You can look at KCP. Again, I don't think he's really an option given that the Pistons are flush at guard at this point. Um, Paul George is staying in LA. Drew Holiday is almost certainly staying in Boston. And again, you got the guards already. Unless you want to get rid of them uh, for like a 34-year-old Drew Holiday. Uh, KCP is turning 31, but Denver would be mad to not keep him. You could look at Jalen Smith. The issue is that he probably hates Monty Williams. I don't know why he would come here. Again, just if, if you think that you've got all the, the guys you need at guard, and if you're high on Sasser and you want Grimes to get a chance and you have Caden Ivey, it just makes it a lot harder to, uh, you know, to consider really signing guards. Again, they're guys like Gary Trent Jr. Maybe you do it. And uh, yeah, things beyond that, you're just looking at depth, guys. I mean, you could have a look at Caleb Martin, but 
don't trust heat role players. Again, though, at some point, the Pistons, if, if things don't work out with the trade, are just going to have to pull the trigger and probably go with players who aren't necessarily ideal. But yeah, I like Dario Saric. And then the Pistons could consider him as like a fill-in for power forward if they really strike out. Though that's going to be a big problem again when Cade's max extension comes out of the books and you've got Stewart coming out of the books this summer already, his extension. You're, you're going to be losing a lot of flexibility. So let's talk restricted free agents. And this is where things get dicey because the moratorium, so basically June 30th, you can start agreeing to contracts with players. It's not until July 6th that you can actually sign them. And if you send an offer sheet, which again, a player has to sign an offer sheet, can only sign an offer sheet with one team. And if he signs a max offer sheet, it means he's going to get less money overall because the team that owns his bird rights is going to, and this is assuming he wasn't signed to a two-year contract, in which event the the arenas provision comes in and teams can still match anyway. Uh, that's a more complicated subject. But if you have a player's bird rights, you can offer him five seasons with 8%, and it's flat, not compounded, 8% flat year-over-year raises. If you don't, and you're signing a player away from another team, and you don't have his bird rights in that case, then you can only offer four years at 6% year-over-year raises, which can be significant, particularly players going into their 30s. But that's not the case with restricted free agents. So basically, the 48-hour clock on deciding whether or not to match begins after the moratorium ends. So you're looking at a little bit short of, you know, that begins at like, uh, I think, noon Eastern on the 6th. So team has until noon Eastern on the 8th when free agency began on the 30th of June. And, oh, there are only 30 days in June. So, uh, yeah, the moratorium is a little bit shorter than seven days. Yeah, so it's basically you're looking at a little bit short of nine days. And, of course, you get to nine days and they match. That cap space is going boom because all the good players have been taken off the market. So what typically happens with restricted free agents coming off rookie contracts, they get max extensions is one. They get very affordable prove-it extensions like uh, Aaron Neesmith, for example, where it's like, okay, we'll keep you on the team at a good salary, and if you work out, then great, you're a bargain. Or they get shown the door. These are by far the most common options. Occasionally, you'll have a guy get like 20, 25 million a year. It's not super common. And if you're putting in an offer sheet, you really want to give yourself the best chance of making it happen. So you overpay. Like if the Pistons have wanted Cam Johnson last season, I don't think they could pull it off. Uh, you know, the Nets probably would have gone up a few million. The Nets, who don't own their picks until 2028, have no incentive to tank, and losing a guy for nothing would be more expensive. Uh, losing a quality player like Cam Johnson, health issues and all, you know, would be more expensive than just overpaying him. So uh, let's look at the top of the list in terms of, you know, of course, this goes by salary, which is James Wiseman, a guy with tremendous potential. I'm just kidding. James Wiseman is terrible, and he's almost certainly not going to be on this team next season. Look at a guy like Patrick Williams. You know, do you step in, you know, solid 3 and D guy? who, you know, conceivably has more potential as a creator, can play small forward and power forward athletic. Do you step in and offer him a lot of money? Well, in the case of the Bulls, you know, the Bulls, who have really bad ownership, who just like, you know, Tom Gores used to be, just want to make the playoffs. They didn't sell anybody. I mean, DeMar DeRozan is almost 35. This team is not going to do anything in the playoffs. Vucevic is washed up. Levine is injured. And it's going to be very, very hard to move now, you know, with, with yet another injury. Because, you know, the, the big misgiving around the league was this guy has a ton of money left in this contract and he's a major health risk. He's having surgery again. So with Wiseman, not with Wiseman, excuse me, with Williams, you know, let's say the Bulls finally do, let's say they decide not to rebuild. Okay, well, you're still keeping Williams. And if they decide to rebuild, why you want to get rid of Williams if you feel like he's a player with high upside? 
the Pistons throw a max at him, then maybe the, the calculus changes, but you're taking a big risk on Patrick Williams with the max contract. Isaac Okoro, uh, more of a small forward, good defender, has really improved for the Cavaliers. They need depth. Why do you let him go? You want to be a successful team. You know, the Cavaliers want to be good. So again, if you severely overpay him, maybe they let him go. I mean, you really have to make it not worth the team's while. And for a team that's going to be over the cap, you know, that means making luxury ta- the luxury tax a consideration. Obi Toppin, not a particularly good player. Um, you could offer sheet him away almost certainly, but Obi Toppin is just not particularly good. He's not a great defender. He's improved as a three-point shooter, but that's just one season. Halliburton is the straw that stirs his drink. You go on down the line, Sadiq Bey, ish. As much as the Wiseman trade sucks, I mean, the guy is shooting 31%, 31.5% from three and is still a ter- the terrible defender he was last season. Uh, Tyrese Maxey is not even worth thinking about. You're not going to get him. The, the Sixers would be insane not to give him a max offer sheet. Excuse me, not give him a max contract. The reason that they didn't extend him last season is so that, because he has a small cap hold as his pick 21. So he was not going to affect their cap space very much. I think it was just like it was with Drummond, who agreed to uh, wait until though his cap hold was larger because he was the number nine pick, to wait until the summer and, and sign his contract afterward, which was going to be much bigger than his cap hold, so the Pistons would have cap space, which, of course, they ended up using on John Luer, uh, not good, and, uh, <laughs> and Ish Smith, who, lovable Ish Smith, who was good for a season and then really fell off as the spacing era continued. Emmanuel, quickly, I'm likely to get a max offer sheet, but you've got your guards already. <laughs> Malachi Flynn is the next on the list. That's, that's pretty amusing. Isaiah Livers is there. So, I mean, if you want to draw one of these guys away, then you're really looking at sending them a massive overpay and, or, or what may be a massive overpay. In the Pistons situation, maybe that makes sense, but I think it only really makes sense to do if you've struck out already. So let's assume that the Pistons get to day three of free agency and you have like Patrick Williams, for example, who, again, I think is a reasonable target and has not agreed to terms with the Bulls, then I think you just bite the bullet and you say, okay, we're going to send Patrick Williams an offer sheet he almost certainly doesn't deserve. Like we'll send him a max offer sheet or something because you know what? It sucks that we're in this situation, but a lot of our cap space is going to go poof next season. And sure, you do have considerations at that point that let's say Ivy does really well and Duran does really well and you end up needing to, to throw max extensions at them too, then you're getting perilously close or maybe close to or maybe over the second apron. So that's the risk you're taking. In that situation, you might have to trade away one of those two. And so you have Patrick Williams who's on a bad you know, on a bad contract and you can't move that because his contract sucks. So, but in that situation, maybe you throw him $30 million and say, well, we're just going to take this risk. That's something I would consider doing. So I would say Pistons would probably go for Tobias first. Well, they'll look for a trade at the draft first feel very confident in that. And if it's a team that just wants to move a guy and get value and rebuild, and I haven't really looked down the list of players who might fit that category. I don't think Laurie Markinen is one of those guys, and he would have to extend right away. You can do what's called an extend, uh, renegotiate and extend in his final year. And the Pistons have the cap space to pull that off. But apparently the Jazz are setting a real high price on him. But if the Pistons get like the number two or three pick, even in this week draft, you trade him for Laurie Markinen, I would do that. Well, I haven't researched the draft yet, but you've got to really consider doing that because the Pistons really need to find a difference maker. If it's not going to be in the draft, it needs to be someplace else. I just don't think Tobias Harris is going to be that. And if all else fails, do you, I mean, you've got to, I mean, do you just sign guys to one-year contracts? Though if you sign a guy to a, to a one-season one contract, they can veto a trade. Then, 
you're on a one plus one, excuse me. If you're on a one plus one, and uh, then then you're able to able to veto a trade, uh, player option, team option. Then I mean their options will boil down to sending an offer sheet to a guy like Patrick Williams, or just signing salary fodder and hoping that they can use that to make a trade midseason. If you flunk that, again, a lot of your cap space is going away, and you're in deep trouble. So I know I didn't really answer the question. I hope this gives an overall perspective, though, just of the fact. Of course, they'll resign Fontecchio, but that's probably going to be to a, a very modest salary, and he's already on the team. So I hope that just gives it a decent prospectus as just as to how things look. It's going to be an interesting time. Again, just their best bet is to try to find that trade for a team that just doesn't want to take any salary back. That's helpful to have that cap space, and maybe you send out that draft pick and Pistons probably don't want to trade away any decent roster player at this point. But maybe you do if it gets, you know, if it helps you to get a star player. So in any case, I know I've talked for more than an hour here. I uh, hope you all enjoyed the episode, despite kind of the uh, the dark times and the sort of grim tidings. I may or may not release an episode next week. It's the all-star break. The Pistons aren't going to be playing until next Wednesday. But honestly, I kind of need a break. I'm not talking about a break from podcasting. I'm talking about a break just from thinking about the Detroit Pistons. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, I've just honestly been getting really, really angry watching the games, again, because of the coach, and I'm feeling kind of despondent. It's like, when are the Pistons going to be freed from this? Is it going to be the rest of the season, and is it going to be the next several seasons? Because I just don't see things working out in any substantial fashion if things stay as they are with the coaching situation. So I'm not going to get into platitudes like all we can do is hope for change, though that's more or less true. It's just no consolation whatsoever. So as always, folks, thank you for listening. Hope you're all doing well. I'll catch you in next week's episode.